Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning, Oak City Church. Thanks for being with us uh, this Sunday morning. We're glad that you have tuned in. We realize we've got a few... Um, technical difficulties this morning, and we are um, we are doing our best to work those out. Um, a couple real quick announcements next week. We're going to be uh, have another outdoor service, so we'll be live here at the building at 9 a.m. You can tune into the live stream at any point, 9 a.m. Um, or after. You need to sign up for that. If you get the weekly email, that was um, the first announcement in the weekly email, and or it's on the website. You can um, go and sign up so that we can space everybody out. Uh, adequately. And if you're new and you haven't signed up for the weekly email, it's our version of a bulletin. You can go to the website, uh, oakcitychurch.com, go down to the bottom and you can sign up for um, that weekly email. But we'd love to see you here next week. Uh, we would, we could use a couple, a couple folks to come early and help us get the equipment out there and get everything loaded out and set up and all that. So if you're willing to help out with that, um, you can, you can email us at info at oakcitychurch.com and um, and we'll get in touch with you and, and, um, and let you know uh, what we need. I want to uh, just note that the IF gathering happened this weekend, and so I'm uh, thankful to— uh, Rebecca Hall is the one that I've communicated the most with. I know Kathy Paisley is involved in that. Mandy uh, Smith and Katie Pritchett both hosted, and so we're thankful for um, the work that all those folks have put into the IF gathering, and uh, that's always a, a great event, and we're glad that we were able to do that uh, even with COVID this year. So thank you guys for all your effort, and just pray and trust that that was a blessing to the women that were able to participate in it. We are, we're done with our Nehemiah series. We're starting a new series this week called Peter and Every Man's Guide to Spiritual Formation. So I'm going to look over the next um, six or seven weeks at different scenes from the life of Peter um, and from the epistles of Peter and look at how his life is kind of a model for our life and the path that we walk with Jesus. And I got here a couple different ways over probably the last three or four months. They're just different things that God has been speaking to me about and convicting me of. And one of them is just that, how Peter, I realized, and the other disciples too, but Peter, we've got a lot of data on his life. And his life really is a model for what it looks like to, to grow up in Christ for us. And so he goes from not knowing anything about Jesus, to his brother telling him about Jesus, to kind of hanging around Jesus, to thinking he's helping Jesus out, to realizing Jesus doesn't need his help and he needs Jesus' help more than he ever imagined, uh, to just soaking it all in, to getting to a point where he's leading other people to Jesus and, and leading in ministry. And in that, you're always going to screw things up. And so screwing things up in little ways and then eventually getting to a point where he gets just really disillusioned about all of it and wonders if he's gotten the whole thing wrong. And then Jesus makes him the Pope and, and just enters a different stage. And I realized, man, that is the path that, that we walk down. Um, and it's, it's helpful. And I realized, and this is probably what I was most convicted, especially for those of you that are kind of on your way into Jesus, I'm not direct with you uh, enough. And that that's really helpful. Like this, that's God's path for you. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He led a perfect life to show us the character of God in a way that we could grasp. He died an unjust and horrific death on the cross to pay the consequences for our sins. He rose from the dead, you know, and he did all that so that we would confess him as Lord, 
We would acknowledge our need for his saving work on the cross. We would get baptized in his name and we would surrender our lives to him, like the fullness of our lives to him because he is Lord. That's why he did all that. And that's his plan for our lives. That's his plan for your life. And our job as a church is to usher you into that plan and along that path unapologetically because that is the best thing that could ever happen to you and the best thing that could ever happen to the people around you. Um, And so there's a directness that I feel like I've been uh, missing as a pastor and maybe we've been missing as a church. And we've done that. It's happened to lots and lots and lots of people during the life of Oak City Church. But we could do that better. And so that's part of growing up as a pastor and growing up as a church and, and part of why we're doing this series. Now, also in the past few months, there's a couple books that I've been reading. Um, one of them uh, for a pastor's retreat I read called The Critical Journey. And it's not the be all end all, but it had these six stages and just a helpful framework within which to understand the experience you have of walking uh, with Christ and the different stages you go down. And then another one, just a random, someone donated this to the church library and I was cleaning things up a few months ago and it's called They Found the Secret and it's these Christian heroes, but how they all got to a point like when they're well down the road with Jesus of like a semi-disillusionment with it all and then everything got deeper. And that's been a super like impactful book for me and it's going to play into this series Um, for us. And hopefully we'll come out of it with a better framework to understand our own experience following Jesus and then also to understand the the path that we're leading people down and do a better job of leading them. But I want to start today by talking about our need for change, um, that we need to change. I heard someone describe leadership in a really simple way a few years ago. He said, leadership is moving people from here to there. You know, and the first step in that is to say, we are here, but we cannot stay here. This is not the place that we're supposed to be. And so we need to move there. And that's what I want to spend today doing is talking about the need for us to change. Because if you think you're fine here, then whatever path that Peter took or anybody else took isn't going to matter because you don't think that you need to go anywhere from where you are right now. So I'm going to start with a a pretty simple statement, and I'm going to complicate it and just point out how it's fairly complicated in our culture and just for us as human beings, you know, and then look at it through a biblical lens. And the statement is simply this. We need to change because we are not the people that we are supposed to be. We need to change because we are not the people that we are supposed to be. Individually and collectively, we are supposed to be something different than what we are. Now, Okay, like some of you are thinking, duh, you know, but, but that's more complicated in our culture if you think about it than, than it, it seems at first. You know, with cancel culture and identity politics, like say this to a group of people and just duck because you're going to get it. As soon as you say there is a way that we are supposed to be, that comes across to some people as a power grab. Like, who gets to define the supposed to? Do you get to define the way that I am supposed to be? That's a big problem in our culture. And we are okay with the supposed to be, that there's a way we are supposed to be, as long as we get to define the supposed to be. But if we get to define the supposed to be, then the supposed to be loses a lot of its oomph. It's not really a supposed to be. It's like how we feel we want to be, you know? I, uh, I read someone a few weeks ago say this, and... 
I thought it was brilliant. He said, two seemingly contradictory currents mark our society. Two seemingly contradictory currents mark our society. One, there is a denunciation of all claims of absolute truth. So there's no supposed to be. No one can define, the, no, there's no ultimate supposed to be. All claims of absolute truth are out the window. But he said, two, there's also a fanaticism in which one position or group is absolutely right, nothing is ambiguous, and divergent views should be destroyed. So on the one hand, there's no absolute truth. On the other hand, there's a fanaticism in which one position or group is absolutely right, nothing is ambiguous, and divergent views should be destroyed. That's just the world that we live in. There's no absolute truth, but if you disagree with me, I'm going to cancel you, and I'm never going to listen to anything that you say again, and nobody else should either. I, I saw these statistics, and, and a number of you did too. We talked about it, but a couple weeks ago, the, the Center for Disease Control put out um, some information about COVID deaths and said that only 6% of COVID deaths in the United States, of the some 200,000 COVID deaths, were were solely from COVID, and the other 94% had what they call comorbidities or some other illness or collection of illnesses that led to um, death. Now, some people took this and said, well, that means that only 6%, only 12,000 of the 200,000 actually died of COVID, and these are all made up and blown out of proportion, and all these other people died of something else, but they just called it COVID. Well, that's not, not what it means. Um, it's, there's more nuance to it than that. But then I read an article in Slate, which is a pretty left-leaning publication that said it was morally egregious to really even ask questions about that data and suggest that anything less than 100% of deaths that are attributed to COVID are actually COVID deaths. It was morally egregious and offensive to the families to, to even ask questions. And I thought, is it morally egregious right now that I'm questioning your use of the term morally egregious in this article. Like if you knew I was asking a question about you writing this article, how would you respond to me? Because that's just where we live right now. And the article went on to put out some great data, actually. Um, they talked about, oh, I think it was 30% of the deaths, and I can't remember the condition. It might have been like emphysema, which is something that happens as a result of COVID or is made worse. And I thought about how uh, when people pass from cancer, it's rarely cancer that is ultimately the cause of death. It is some other factor. It's like pneumonia, but they can't fight the pneumonia because of the cancer. So there's comorbidities and it's helpful information, but you can't have a nuanced conversation right now because if you don't agree with somebody, you're wrong. Now, so this statement, we need to change because we are not who we're supposed to be, is a complicated statement. Um, and if, if this, there's some people that think, well, we don't need to change at all. If this is who we're supposed to be, then we're in trouble. You know, there is, um, there's a line of thinking, and if you've never heard this or thought about it, don't worry about it, but there's a line of thinking that is like an outflowing of just a naturalistic worldview, that there's no God, there's no supernatural, like it's all just evolution from simple to complex organisms, that, that everything we do, including the words that I say, are predetermined by all the circumstances and genetics of my life. And so there's no such thing as free will. And so I'm exactly who I'm supposed to be, or there's no supposed to be whatsoever. You go down that line of thought, and that, I'm done with it, but it's kind of depressing, you know? But some people go down that line, but we know that that's, we just have a sense that's not the way things are supposed to be. This we're not who we're supposed to be. 
we need change is a reality that we really want people to take in, but we don't want them to be crushed by it. Like it's like you're threading a needle with that you know, thought process. Uh, you're not who you're supposed to be, like change is necessary, but we don't want to crush you with it. It's why we give our kids participation trophies because we don't want them to be crushed by failure and yet we want them to know that they can be better, you know? You're great even though you lost, which is true, like absolutely true, but you know, maybe soccer's not your thing or whatever it is and that is true too. And it, we try hard to sell our kids both those things, you know? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident that we've leaned a little bit too hard in the you're okay way because we're finding that when kids get out on their own and face some of the harsher realities of life, they're not equipped to deal with them because we've shielded them from the, hey, um, you know, you're going to need to change. Like, you're not in your fullness who you're supposed to be right now. When someone denies this completely and says, no, I am who I'm supposed to be, there's a, a psychological term for that. It's narcissism, you know, and you become obnoxious and people don't want to be around you. And yet, when you lean too far the other way and say, yes, this isn't who I'm supposed to be, it, like, and you just get overwhelmed by your faults, then that's not where you want to be either. So there's a, there's a balance to this that we're always seeking. Uh, and it's, a, it's a, an extremely biblical reality, and it sets up the need for spiritual formation or change or this path of Peter, um, and how you handle it makes all the difference in the world. And I, man, I promise you the gospel, like the, the narrative of the Bible takes, handles this, is better than anything out there. Better than anything out there. Um, I, I recommended in the weekly that I referenced earlier um, a podcast that I follow. I don't listen to it a ton, but when they have a, an interesting topic I do called the Knowing Faith Podcast. And it's a woman named Jen Wilkin, who a lot of you have heard of. I've mentioned her before. She's fantastic. Uh, a guy named J.T. English that was a former co-worker of hers and another guy named Kyle Worley. Then they just kind of talk theology, but not in like a, it's maybe it's nerdy. It's a little biblically nerdy, but I'm okay with that. But not like, it's not over your head. It's like, it's really accessible. And so they're going through a series on the beginnings of Genesis, on Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And this is like my wheelhouse. This, do yourself a favor cue that podcast up, listen to it with your family, talk about it, because it's so helpful in understanding the rest of the Bible when you understand the beginning of it. And the Bible starts with the reality that we are made in the image of God with dignity and capacity and purpose. That is where the Bible starts. It's different than other religions and how we are created and why we are created. But he creates us in his image to glorify him with dignity and capacity and purpose. And that makes us different than than anything else on the earth. The other day, I went to a, um, an, I went to a glaucoma specialist. Um, I, I guess glaucoma is really bad. I don't know anything about it. Um, it and then the glaucoma guy doesn't think I have glaucoma, but we're going to keep an eye on it. But my eye doctor said, you have a, a large optic nerve, and so you need to go see this guy. So I went to see this guy. He was really nice, Dr. Siddiqui, really nice. He, um, he did some things to me that I think the CIA does to people they don't like overseas. Like there was a long appointment and there was lots of bright lights in my eyes. But the end of the appointment, we're looking at pictures of my eye and the optic nerve. And he's using language. We've talked about our backgrounds. We're both born in Milwaukee and ended up here. And, um, and I, I'm a pastor. He told him that. And 
he's using language of how the eye is made, not how the eye is. It's not like the eye is this way, but this is how the eye was made. And so I'm, you know, he's leaning into faith. And, I'm, and so I just take the conversation at one point and said, hey, do you really believe that? Do you really, like it, I need to know if you're just talking me up or if you really believe that because it's helpful for me. Because I look at this picture of my eye and you're talking about retinas and corneas and there's a little dot that's like an optic nerve. It looks like a, like a little thing of water that stuff comes through and hits my optic nerve and all of a sudden I can see all this stuff and like it blows me away. It's amazing to me. And so I, it would be helpful for me to know if you having studied this thing for you know, most of your life, look at it and think, there's no way this just happened, you know, <laughs> because I study it and I, uh, just a little bit, I know there are simple organisms with like light sensitive patches. And so there's a story behind evolution, but it still doesn't make sense to me that we could just get to a point where boom, we can see this and it's all meaningful to us. And he's like, no, I have the same car conversation with my cardiologist. He's like, no, I look at that. And I think there's no way that just happened. Like someone did that. Um, and it makes us different. I was talking to my daughter on the way to soccer practice later that night and talked through this. And I said, it's just, we're just different. Like the, our dog, Joe, doesn't sit looking out the window thinking, oh man, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. How wonderful are you? Where the dog doesn't think about that stuff. You know what I mean? Not, no one else does contemplate that stuff except for us because we're made in the image of God and we have dignity. And this is why we give out participation trophies because you're human and you probably should get a trophy just for being made human because you're incredible <laughs> and we know it and you have great potential because you're human. And so the Bible, that's where the Bible starts. I mean, it gives everybody fundamental dignity. That's why the racism discussion needs to be a biblical discussion because God's the one that gave every single one of us dignity. Uh, so it starts there, but we're, we're flawed by sin. We're flawed by sin. And this is the nuance of this is the hard part. So when um, in that podcast that you're now all going to listen to, Jen Wilkin gives her in the first one, her summary of Genesis 1 through 11. They each had to give a summary and hers was the best. She said, God is our origin. And because of that, we owe him worship and obedience. But instead, we worship ourselves. He's our origin, he's our author, our creator, and because of that, we owe him worship and obedience, but instead we worship ourselves. We were created to reflect him, but instead we rival him. We were created to show the world around us what God is like, and instead we rival God and we want to be God. That's supposed to, that is there. We want to define that instead of letting God define that. Uh, then she says, despite the fact that we rebelled against him, he reconciles us to him, he provides a way back, and he is faithful to ensure that that happens, right? There is a supposed to. Um, there's a gap between what is and that supposed to. We want to define the supposed to, but God defines the supposed to, and the gap between the difference is the result of sin. That's thus rivaling God instead of submitting to God. That is the, the hard, hardest part about this, because though we know we should be different, and we know we're guilty at some level, um, much of what we're guilty of we may not have, we may not feel like we were willful about it. Like we didn't do it on purpose, even if it has negative consequences to us, to God, and to the people around us. Um, we didn't, you don't wake up in the morning and think, you know what, I think I'm going to go rob a bank today. Like I know that's the wrong thing to do, and I might have to hurt some people in the process. It's other people's money that I'm taking, but I love that money, and I need the money, and so I'm going to go take it. We don't think about most of our sin like that. Most of it happens like it's just an outflowing of us because we think it's our right 
to, to be God instead of to reflect God. And that's like our problem is so much deeper than we can understand that our problem is. But we do it and we can't help it. And because we can't help it, we think that we should not be held responsible for it. And that, I think, is the biggest, it's, it's the biggest barrier for people to come into faith in Christ and really understanding what the gospel is about. It's the biggest barrier for those of us that have walked with Christ for a while as we get to deeper and deeper levels of sin. And I've said this before, like what has seemed normal to us, God is pointing out, no, that's sin too. Um, and I think it's the biggest barrier to grow, thinking that we don't have to take responsibility for our, our actions. There is a, there's a great bit um, that, I, that I looked at this week in a book called Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton that I'm not going to get as into as I want to, but he says, alone of all creeds, Christianity is convincing where it is not attractive. It is convincing where it is not attractive. And so he talks about the idea of original sin and says, this is totally not an attractive idea. Like, this is a hard one to swallow. The idea that you are responsible for the consequences of actions that you feel like you couldn't help but commit, not attractive. The idea that you needed the Son of God to come from heaven to earth to die on a cross for your sins, hard sell. That is a hard sell. But when you really go down that road, like, it's attractive. Like, the implications of it are attractive because it puts us on a level playing field. He contrasts it with reincarnation, um, which I think in some way, even if not in the traditional way, most people believe that. It's like karma, just karma, what comes around goes around. And he says, if that's the case, then our inequalities are based on our actions, and everybody isn't on a level playing field. But if grace is the reality, and our original sin is covered by the work of Christ— then he says Christianity preaches an obviously unattractive idea, but when we wait for its results, they are sympathy and brotherhood and a thunder of laughter and pity, for only with original sin can we at once pity the beggar and distrust the king. Like, we're on a level playing field with, with everybody. We pity the beggar because, but for the grace of God, go I. You know, that could be me. And we distrust the king because he didn't get there because of some great thing, and original sin is true for him too. It levels the playing field. Uh, someone is going to take responsibility for your actions, whether they were intentional or not. Um, and, and, and the gospel just, it's going to take us deeper and deeper into this. Uh, addicts don't, you know, if you find out you're addicted to a, some type of chemical substance, they don't realize, well, I can't help it, so there are no consequences to it, and it doesn't just make a difference. Or they do for a while, but they find out they're burning their life down. You know, they find out that they have no control over it, and instead they go to rehab, and they get somebody to help them do something for themselves that they could not do. That's what this is like. We find out sin is not some occasional things that we do, but it's, it's an addiction to rivaling God instead of reflecting God. And then we go get help from Jesus because he's the only one that can help us. And church is supposed to be like one big rehab for sinners that have realized that they can't help it, that they need more help than they ever thought uh, that they needed. So we're flawed by sin. This also makes us different. You know, my, my dog, um, likewise, he doesn't look out the window and think I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He, doesn't, he also doesn't look out the window and think, you know, I shouldn't have pooped on the carpet. I, I was walking up the stairs to that spot where I poop, and I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I did it anyway, and I just feel so bad about it. I don't know how to tell him. He doesn't think that stuff, you know, because he's not made in the image of God. He's not morally culpable, and he doesn't have those thoughts. It makes us 
uh, it makes us different. We are redeemed by the work of Christ on the cross. There are consequences to our sins, to God, to our own self, to each other, and we can't possibly make those up. We cannot put the genie or those genies back in the bottle, and we need God to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. And, and that's what that's what all throughout the Bible, it says Christ did on the cross for us. Like there's picture after picture and story after story that point to Christ on the cross and how his sin is the atonement, or his death is the atonement for our sins. That's hard, that's hard, that's a hard sell. It's hard to believe. And if it were not for the resurrection of Jesus, that he rose from the dead and they never found the body and the church came from that belief, like that alone, he rose from the dead is what spurred the church to change the world in the matter of a few hundred years. If it weren't for the resurrection, I wouldn't believe it. Paul wouldn't have believed it. Um, if, if Christ is not risen from the dead, he said, my preaching is in vain and so is your faith. And so if you are just on your way into this stuff and you're wondering and you're like, man, this is, you know, this stuff is hard, then the resurrection is what you need to investigate and see what you think happened there because that's what God gave us. You know, and that's what he points us back to. And so we're redeemed by the work of, cross, work of Jesus on the cross, and we are being renewed by the Holy Spirit because we're not who we're supposed to be, and we need to change, and we can change. We can change, and that's good news. Like, if we can change, we should change because we know we're not who we're supposed to be. Um, and that, like that, the biblical worldview of that is the best explanation for, uh, like, we, we need to change because we're not who we're supposed to be. And it gets you to the place of saying, hey, we can't stay here. We need to go there, and there's a path that we can walk to, down. And, and how do we become who we are supposed to be? How do we become who we're supposed to be? And that's what we're going to see uh, in the life of Peter. I'm going to spend um, just another, another couple minutes reading through a handful of verses from the New Testament that lean into this idea of change. And that's where I want to leave you this morning, um, is hopefully longing, longing for that and asking questions about that in your own self as we, we look into the life of Peter. So from 1 Thessalonians 4, um, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. As you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, you have changed. You do so more and more because more change is needed. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, which is you becoming more like Christ. Change. James uh, chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And so he's, it, that's change. Like his goal is that you would be perfect and, and complete, mature, uh, is another way they translate that word, lacking in nothing. And it's the trials that you go through these are the things that are going to test your faith. And when your faith grows, then that's going to lead to change in your life. 1 Peter chapter 1, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former 
ignorance. So he's even saying there, like, yeah, you didn't know you were doing it, but there's still consequences to the things you didn't know you were doing, and so you, you need to change um, regardless. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Romans chapter 8, we know that those who love God, that for those who love God, all things work according together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. This is process. That his desire is for you to be conformed to the image of his son. And so predestination is another sermon for another day. But he called you. And if he called you, he justified you. And if he justified you, he's going to glorify you. And some of you, like, you know you've been called. And some of you are being called right now. Uh, change. Romans 8, again, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, and hope that is seen is not hope who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so change in this verse isn't something we resist. Change is something that we groan for. We long for this change. We see what's possible, and we know that that's what God wants for us, and the Holy Spirit is in work in us, and so we groan for that change because we long for it, but so many times we just resist it, you know? And this is what the Spirit wants to do in us. And finally, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Now the Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another by the work of the Spirit of God. Change, 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 change. That's his you know, desire for us as we walk with Christ. And change is, is freedom. Change is freedom. If you're not changing, if you're not leaning into change, honestly, and you think you're following Jesus, you're probably not. Like if, if you just don't sense any need for change or you're totally resistant to change and yet you're calling yourself a Christian and you're, and you're following Jesus, you probably need to ask yourself um, some really serious questions. Because Jesus didn't need to come down from heaven to earth to die on a cross because we're just fine the way that we are. Like, we need to change. Now, at the same time, and hear this, God will never love you any more or any less than he does at this very moment. He will never love you any more or any less, no matter what you've done, what you're doing, what you will do. <laughs> He's never loved you any more or any less than he does at this very moment because God's love for you is not dependent on your character. His love for me is not dependent on my character. It's dependent on his character. And so his love doesn't change. He loves us. He loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for us. But that doesn't mean that he's good with everything that we think and feel and say and do. And in our culture, that's hard because in our culture, if you love me, then you are not going to ask me to change. That's how our culture works. That is not how our God works because he will not let us settle for how we are because it's not how he made us to be. And so he wants to change us. And that change won't be complete until we're with him. And yet, 
that change should be happening. And when that change happens, the kingdom of God should be becoming more of a reality in our hearts and in our relationships and our families, in our neighborhoods and our church and our schools, in our workplaces. And that's what we're going to see in the life of Peter over the next few weeks. And we'll get a better understanding of what has happened for us, what is happening in us right now, what's happening in the people around us, and it'll be helpful. If you have not taken that step of receiving who Christ is and what he's done for you, if you've been listening to these messages and you feel like under the weight of your guilt and shame for your sin, like Jesus, Jesus came from heaven to earth. He hung naked on a cross and died a shameful death so that he could take your shame and take your guilt. A lot of times, change is put on us out of shame and guilt. Like, you should feel ashamed or guilty, and so that's why you should change. And I, the gospel does not do that, and it's another reason that I think it's absolutely true. <laughs> he takes our guilt and shame, and then change is something that happens because he loves us, because he loves us, and he wants what's best for us. And change is something we come to desire because we love him and we want to please him. And it comes about because on the cross, he's done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And through a, like an increasing dependence on the Holy Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead and Paul said is alive in us, he continues that process in us. If you're just getting started with that, please get in touch with me please get in touch with me because that's what the church is for and that's what the church has done for 2,000 years and our church has done for 13 years and we want to keep doing <laughs> is see God work that in people's lives. And if you're just getting started, like you need the help of the church because that's how God made it to be. Father, I thank you for, um, for what you've given us about the life of Peter and I thank you for the ups and downs of it. I thank you for the things that he did well and the things that he did wrong. I thank you that we see ourselves in that, God. Um, I pray for every, every, everybody that's tuned into this, Lord, that we would, we would see our need for change and we wouldn't see that out of guilt and shame, but we would see that because You've created us to be something absolutely spectacular, and you're not going to settle for any less than that, and then we don't have to either, Lord. And um, your yoke is, is easy. <laughs> your burden is light. You are humble, Lord, and that we would approach you and approach the change that you want to make in our lives in that way, Father. Thank you that you redeemed us. Thank you um, that you are at work in our lives, that your spirit is all around us and that you are making us who we were created to be. We love you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us again this morning. Uh, we will be outside next week. We would love to see you there next week. Go to the website, check the weekly. You'll find the link and sign up for that, and we'll get you some information about how that's going to go. The service will be at 9. You can tune in next week um, anytime after that. And again, we could use some help setting up, and so if you're willing to do that, uh, please send us an email at info at oakcitychurch.com and we'll get some details uh, back to you. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. Uh, we love you guys and hope you tune in again next week.